0: And we're back here on Unusual Sources, 93.3 CFMU, FM, first program of the year. And we're very lucky to have two distinguished guests with us today uh, doing some organizing and whatnot in Hamilton. And I, I just couldn't resist the chance to have them both in the studio today. We have Christopher Black, and he's an international lawyer. Who has um, a long and interesting career on these issues that we're going to be talking about today? And we have Professor Graham McQueen, and he was the uh, director of the uh, Center for Peace Studies right here at McMaster uh, University. Um, and so, uh, so it's familiar territory to both of you, I'm sure, but thanks very much for coming in today.
1: You're welcome, it's good to be back at McMaster after all these years.
2: Great to be here, Brenda.
1: A lot of activists come
0: from here and um you know uh, you both of you have so much to contribute to this we're we're talking about the article that both of you wrote and submitted it got published in the toronto star it's an op-ed piece um in the star it's called how canada can lead north korean peace talks at vancouver summit and its response to all this saber rattling and dangerous talk and action And, and canada has a role in negotiations and you have um a definite viewpoint on how things should be conducted, one that has attracted uh, enough attention. I guess the first question here, I, I suppose I'd ask Graham, I, how, did you, how did you manage to, to do this? I know you had a big role in getting this letter drafted and sent out. How did it come to uh, your idea to be sending a letter to the, the Toronto Star on how Canada can take a more constructive role in the North Korea situation?
2: Well, uh, some months ago, I decided to look into this North Korean crisis a little more, in in a little more depth. I'd been concerned with war issues, of course, for decades. But I'm no Korea expert and uh, took a little urging for me to look into it. And when I looked into it, of course, I realized, as others have, that this is extremely dangerous. And also that we're getting another uh, huge dose of propaganda, as is so common, Uh, I'm no Korea expert. I've been to South Korea, but um, absolutely not selling myself as that. But I know a fair bit about peace work, anti-war work, and I know a fair bit about foreign policy of the United States. So it's pretty clear what's going on. Um, All the steps are being put in place one by one. You demonize your opponent. You um, try and get the UN on board. Donald Trump, I think, is too frankly, out of it to realize the importance of that, but there are obviously people around him who do realize the importance of it, and who are being very careful, actually, to build, uh, to build the blocks they need in order to be in a position to carry out uh, a war of aggression against North Korea. So they've brought the Security Council along, they've got China and Russia to go with it. This is very dangerous. Um, this is like a, a building of the Coalition of the Willing that we saw before the Iraq attacks. And as I saw this happening and knowing a bit about the Korean War and and knowing that nuclear weapons could be at stake, I began to think, uh, uh, this is urgent. What can I do? Now, I write for various uh, sites on the Internet, but they're often read by people who think the way I do. And while it's, it's, it's certainly worth writing for them, I, I was desperate here to have something published in a mainstream uh, organization or vehicle. And uh, so Chris and I talked about doing an op-ed, and uh, it didn't take too long to draft this, to make it sufficiently moderate, you know, and cut out all my rhetoric and denunciations. And, um, and, and the star actually jumped at it didn't take any persuading. They were looking for something. And so there it is. I guess
0: Trump's crazy talk on the issue has shaken a number of people. And uh, at least people are making rhetoric about constructive solutions. And and what you have to say is um, something that wakes you up because, unfortunately, you've seen this script before. Both you and Christopher are quite familiar with the script of demonization and putting the blocks into place to attack a country, which we've all seen a number of times now in the last 15 or more years, not just with reference to North Korea, but even presently with other countries. So, um, you know, it's a big problem. And you are obviously responding to the inadequacy of reporting and coverage on North Korea. People can just say anything they want to uh, about North Korea, and it's accepted as true no matter how ridiculous it is, which is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, Christopher, I mean, you, unlike so many people who go on and on and spout off about North Korea, you've actually been there. Right. You've spoken with people there. Uh, You've seen parts of the country. Um, I found that to be fascinating. I heard you give an interview on the Taylor Report, and I just, I wanted to learn more because we do have some Canadians who have been to North Korea and have helped us out on this issue and contributed. What was your impressions and your experience when you were able to go there?
1: Well, <clears throat> we, I went with the National Lawyers Guild delegation from the United States of American Lawyers. I was the only Canadian on that trip, and we were invited by the Democratic Lawyers Association of North Korea. Now, people may find it surprising that they have lawyers in Korea with the propaganda that people hear in the mass media here, and that these lawyers were all defense criminal lawyers, or de- criminal defense lawyers. <clears throat> uh, yes, they do have them, and they're very sophisticated people. We went there also with some trepidation because although I'm on the left, um, two members were—one was a Republican, one was a Democrat, one was independent. Um, We all had trepidations about what we would find there because even we had absorbed subconsciously or consciously some of the things being told to us in the mass media about that country. But our surprise began— as soon as we got on the plane to go into Pyongyang from Beijing, because the plane was packed with people from Scotland, Germany, uh, Turkey, uh, Canada. There was a person going into North Korea to set up an electrified dairy farm sponsored by the Saskatchewan government. And when we got to our hotel the very first day we were there, the first people we met in our hotel were five American army officers who had been there for two years. So it turned out that North Korea was not a hermit kingdom. It was not a lockdown, isolated kingdom or a country at all. It was many people were going in and out and probably still are, uh, conducting normal commercial relations. And at that time they had set up three um, free trade zones in Korea as an experiment. And we've asked these American soldiers, were, one was a major, <clears throat> what they were doing there. They were there from Hawaii to recover US servicemen's remains killed in the Korean War. They'd been there for two years, and we asked them, this is our first day here, what's it like here? And they said, look, don't quote us, but everything we were told about this country is false. It's one of the nicest countries we've ever been in, and everybody's very nice to us here, and it's nothing you've heard is true. And we spent two weeks there and found out that to be the case, that the country is, A, beautiful physically, as South Korea is, the people are not starving. The people are very well-dressed. They dress better than we do here because everybody, all the men dress in, in, like Africans do, in crisp shirts and, and, and slacks, and the women are very well-dressed. You don't see any armed police anywhere, as opposed to when I come back to Toronto, I see policemen with Glock pistols in North Korea. We didn't see one armed policeman anywhere, not even with a baton. Uh, And the city Pyongyang is a very modern, futuristic city. The houses are what reminded us of something you'd see in Portugal and Greece, sort of red-tiled cottages. And standards there of living are very high because education is free up to Ph.D. level. Students are paid a stipend. Health care is free. Housing is completely free. Doctors and lawyers are paid less than mine workers. Physical workers are paid more than professionals. It's considered that they have more risks and have more heavy work, so they should be paid more. These sort of things were were surprising to us, and their attitude towards um, the law was also surprising because the at that time they had no death penalty. It's since been restored for treason cases, but at that time they had no death penalty, whereas Canada still does for treason cases. Um, and the longest sentence they had was 12 years for a first degree murder so all these stories about work camps and death camps and all that is just complete fabrications so that was our our impression i can go on much longer and tell you many more things
0: you know it's clear on the one hand that people living in in the north korea they have a lot of difficulties and challenges for sure they're under sanctions i know you want to talk about that their whole country was burned to the ground in the 1950s you know and they had to build it all you know being isolated relatively they were part of a, a socialist bloc at the time, which then disappeared in the 90s. That was a rough time. But it is a place where people go about their normal business. Mm-hmm. And they have schools and hospitals and roads and teachers and right. zoos and parks and so on. And they're not looking for World War Three, And they're not a bunch of mole people. You right. know, it's, you know that, and that you know, relates so much to what you and Graham are saying in the letter, in that there's a few things here that the sanctions keep coming up because it relates so heavily to North Korean daily life, but also the fact that people in North Korea they don't want war um, and they want better relations with South Korea. And you notice that as well. Just as they had U.S. military personnel in there looking over remains and bringing remains back and that sort of thing, there's been trains from South Korea to North Korea, and you know these things where they have you know these industrial projects together. North Korea and South Korea have huge sections of the population that want to unify.
1: Yes, Yes, when I met with the government, they told me that their plan, or their, their proposal, which they've made several times over the past 20 years, is to unify both Koreas into one federal republic, and that they would, the South would keep its free enterprise system, they would keep their socialist system, and be unified, and the American occupation forces would leave, which would make Korea maybe a more powerful industrial country than Japan, which is, I think, what, one of the things they fear. Um, and that over time, they said probably we'd end up with some sort of mixed economy. But the Americans won't give us that because they won't do two things we asked for. A guarantee they won't attack us, one a document stating that, and a peace treaty. If we had those two documents, we don't need our weapons. We would get rid of our nuclear weapons, which are a waste of our resources, we don't need all these people in the army. Army officers who told me, um, Major Kim at Panmunjom told me he was a, he wanted to be a poet. His brother's a soccer player, his sister was a violin player. But they're all in the army. He said a lot of his friends are in the army when they'd rather be doing other things in life because they fear an attack. So they feel it's their public patriotic duty to do that.
0: Well, it's like the Taylor Report said, North Korea is full of real people, mm. you know, with real ambitions and goals. Right. And it's full of artists and poets and so on. Mm. And they have their own view on the world. They have they have art exhibits brought in from abroad and so on. And they, they, they want to be part of the world, but they don't want to surrender, uh, you know, after all the difficulties they face. For those who have... Uh, just tuned in, we're speaking with Christopher Black, an international lawyer, and we're speaking with Professor Emeritus Graham McQueen, uh, both of whom have been doing great work in trying to raise awareness of the different options that we have, uh, you know, to take a constructive role rather than a Trump button-pushing role uh, with regard to North Korea. I mean, you talk about solutions in the article, and they pertain to the fact that uh, the whole approach to the country is wrong. Uh, Graham, I mean, you know, you've, you've got about four solutions that are proposed in the, the article, like a, a permanent peace treaty recognizing valid uh, security concerns. Um, I'm going to talk to Chris about some of the stopping points, but in terms of building some kind of uh, better option for Canadians and for Koreans overall, what are you looking to do? Because you have so much experience in peace studies and peace building activities and the anti-war movement and so on. Who are you talking to or what are you trying to do Canada-wide to give us alternatives on this whole situation?
2: Well, I think the most urgent thing from my point of view is to rebuild the anti-war movement in this country. Uh, Because, you know, me talking to an MP here or there isn't going to change things. But um, a social movement can sometimes change things. At the moment in Canada, there's no good alternative voice now for peace. Um, I mean, you know, uh, when, when journalists can praise this Canadian diplomatic initiative that's taking place on January 16th, very in, in, for the most part naively, there have been a, a few good editorials about it, but for the most part, they're pretty naive about it. Oh good, Canada's going to do something diplomatic. We'll look into it a little more deeply here. Uh, we're co-sponsoring that with the United States, the biggest foe of North Korea in the world. We're bringing countries to this conference that fought against and helped burn down North Korea in the Korean War. We're talking about one of the aims of this as um, getting rid of loopholes in the sanctions against North Korea and increasing the pressure on that country. And it, it really offends me that this is all being talked about as diplomatic. Now, mind you, it's always been the case in the Canadian government, the term diplomacy can mean all kinds of things. So in this case, it seems to mean how can we, in a nice, peaceful, friendly way, get together a bunch of people to do something nasty to North Korea? But where's the voice for peace? Let's not confuse what foreign affairs, you know, in this country calls diplomacy With a voice for genuine lasting peace with dignity and if we want that voice for peace and dignity where are we going to find it well we need a social movement and the social movement is sleeping and op-eds and you know articles here and talking here and having forums all over the country you know this is what's necessary and of course um i should also mention that uh I've been talking a lot to Michelle Shasadovsky, the host of uh, the Global Research website. He, in fact, was one who emailed me a few weeks ago and said, we need to do something to prevent nuclear war in North Korea. How can we get things going? And so, of course, we put on a local event here. Michelle is giving two more talks, and we're all talking about how to organize.
0: Yes, in fact, we had that talk. The Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War helped organize that talk. Michelle spoke and filled up the church downtown it was good you know I mean with no resistance to these kind of things happening he come in he tours and gets a lot of attention actually for people that are concerned about this so that was a, a positive development and in fact uh, videos of that lecture he was introduced by Eva Bartlett and videos of that are available on the uh, Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War the website which is hcsw.ca it's just been uh, revamped and is, is much more useful now so people should check that out but as you're saying you know people that look into this sort of thing know that canada has often played a sneaky role diplomatically we portray ourselves as peacekeepers and diplomats but often that even though they take an interlocutor role or whatever, it actually turns out to be doing stuff that the Americans can't get away with Mm -hmm. and using our intelligence services and embassies and diplomatic personnel to go and further, you know, infiltrate a country and, and do some underhanded things. So we have to keep an eye on what Canada's actually doing. We want it to be doing something constructive. And as you said, lazy kind of thinking predominates where it's assumed that everything we're doing is good, everything Canada is doing is good, and things like sanctions are good. Chris, you know that about the sanctions and, and how it affects domestic politics and the situation in, in Korea itself and how it is an obstacle to peace and mm-hmm. any, any sort of progress there. I mean, these sanctions, this is not a benign thing. I mean, this seems to have real effects on everyone there.
1: Well, as Graham pointed out in an article he wrote, which <clears throat> a very good point, that the cutting of the oil supplies by almost 90 is, percent is almost exactly what they did to Japan in 1941, which led to the war in the Pacific. And we don't want that happening again. But why are they cutting the horse supplies at 90 that's, percent? That's collective punishment on a people, not a government. Um, whatever faults you can allege against the DPRK, why should the bulk of the population suffer the results of that? But speaking of the sanctions, the sanctions themselves are illegal. Um, the Security Council has no right, it's ultra-virus of the Security Council, to invoke sanctions, uh, vote for sanctions against one of the members of the countries of the UN When they're in violation of no international law, and the DPRK is in no violation of any law, Um, they're alleged that they're building nuclear weapons in violation of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Well, they're not a member of that treaty. They withdrew. And all the Security Council members who themselves have nuclear weapons and test them on a regular basis are not fulfilling their obligations under that treaty to seek nuclear disarmament, as the Pope called for this week. So the sanctions will have a serious effect and they're meant to either undermine the the government in north korea or or and cause a crisis for the government there and to try and bring them to their knees and it will not happen they're a very proud people and they remember what the americans and uh, i'm sorry our forces and all the un forces did when they attacked north uh, korea in 1950 53 um, i can tell you some horrible stories we saw there Evidence we saw there of what they did. Well, oh, they're never going to forget what what was done. They'll never forget, and, and I mean, yeah, and if it colors their thinking so much. Yeah. Right, reasonably so. Imagine if
0: someone came to Canada and burned down literally a hundred percent of the country, and just burned everything down, and there was nothing left, and you had to rebuild it all from scratch, and there was millions dead, a good chunk of the whole country, you know, 30 percent of the population killed. You would never forget. It would be in every movie from now until the end of time about how these bad people came and did this, right. you know, to us. Um, and, and you're, I mean, the sanctions and the international law that it's just what you and, and Graham were writing about you said in the article in the uh, Toronto Star stop insulting north korea banish the term rogue state and i want that 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 you know that's a big issue here because all the all sorts of names uh, are applied to north korea and one of them is rogue state and it's always someone the us doesn't like right you know Saddam, Iraq, or noriega in panama or god knows it's always someone who the us doesn't like um, north korea is not going around invading all sorts of UN members. It's staying within its borders, so uh, it, it's in violation of only of arbitrary things for the most part that the United States has invented mm-hmm. in its you know uh, self-imposed hegemony. Uh, it's I mean it's really the U.S. fits the definition of a rogue state. Even Chomsky has talked about that. So I mean you know rogue state. I mean that that's a very biased label.
2: I just want to say a word about that. Yeah. Um there's a lot we could say here, but what strikes me is rogue state is one of the key terms in the, in the global war on terror. And if you look at speeches George W. Bush gave, for example, he basically said, OK, the Soviet Union is gone. We don't have to worry about them anymore. That was before they, before they started thinking Russia really was, gonna, <laughs> was still going to be a major world power. Uh, no, we don't have to worry about them anymore. So there are two things we have to worry about. One is terrorists which, of course, can mean anything, and the other is rogue states. And um, so you have to bear in mind that's the official enemy. And they can name anybody a rogue state that they want to. There's no formal definition of that that I'm aware of. Um, so you have to be always very careful when they're trying to put somebody in that, uh, in that box and realize that there's a whole context and a history here. And this is part of what I talked about as the building up, right, of pressure against North Korea. And remember that George W. Bush also named the so called axis of evil. The term was David Frum's, but George W. Bush used it. And North Korea um, is part of that axis of evil, according to you know. So you have North Korea and Iran and a bunch of other states. And North Koreans are sitting there watching the countries that were named the acts of evil being picked off one at a time. What do they conclude? They conclude, well, they're going to come after us next. And so they work very, very hard. And I've talked to North Korean diplomats. They said, our people sacrificed a great deal to build up this nuclear deterrent because we think it's the only thing that will keep us safe. And I I want to say one more thing about that. Jimmy Carter, former president of the United States, came up with a very good article it was either August or September, I think it was August of 2017. He said, based on over 20 hours of direct talks with North Korean uh, government people, he had concluded the following, and he lays it out. One of them is they think we're going to attack them. And they need, you know, yeah, I wonder why. And they need assurances and they want a treaty and so on and so forth. Very reasonable, very succinct, no mysteries.
0: Yeah, it's unfortunate that this U.S.-led international order is self-selecting for states that can defend themselves. You know, you got you can, you, you have to be ready to fight, you know, and that's forcing mm-hmm. anyone that wants to have a state that, to, to be ready to fight. Um, and that sort of gets, you know, We can, I wanted to conclude with a little bit about the geopolitics of the situation. And, Chris, you were alluding to that in terms of the, the sanctions and the... The desire for unification among North and South Koreans. I mean, this has gone on for too long. You know, it's a tired story, and it's embarrassing, really, that there is, uh, you know, a North and Korea, North and South Korea, pointing guns at each other. They don't seem to want this. It seems that you know, the, the crisis actor, the people that are causing the tension and crisis right now, is the United States, not mm. North and South Korea, and that, like their presence is exacerbating the
1: situation. Right, <clears throat> right. It, 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 <clears throat> the North Koreans. If the proposal was accepted, if you unification, then the, obviously the Americans have to leave. They don't want to leave because that gives them pressure on China and Russia further west. Um, but that's the only stumbling block is the occupation and the American refusal to give them a peace treaty and a, just a simple written guarantee that they won't attack them. I wouldn't trust that piece of paper myself. But the fact that the North Koreans say we've asked for that and they refuse to give it indicates that they are going to attack us. And the last time they attacked us, they, they they destroyed the country and they killed millions of people and we're not going to let it happen again. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not going to attack anybody. We can have peace tomorrow and yes, we're wasting a lot of resources building nuclear weapons we could be putting into other things. I mean, we've got a wonderful society here and if you go there, you'll see that it actually is. It's not a fantasy. How much better it could be if they didn't have to spend resources on building those weapons. And they don't want to do, be doing that. They want to you know, one of the things in their symbol is not just a hammer and sickle. They have the artist brush. And that's a very important point about North Korea, that they've included the artist brush, the intellectuals, as an important part of the society. So they have lots of creative ideas they'd like to put into action if they had the resources available and not being shifted into the war, I
0: see, the war effort. It's amazing what they've been able to do with the limitations that, you
1: know, under which it, they've been operating. It would stun you to go there and see what they've done with the limitations they have.
0: You know, uh, it there are people that are looking at the situation and, and making similar conclusions. You know, it, it really is, you know, uh, groups of self-interested people and conglomerates in the U S that are pushing for this, this destructive situation. Um, and, and a lot of people, a lot of people in Southeast Asia could really do without a large conflict there, which would be absolutely devastating to international trade. Never mind all the other consequences. People have, people don't seem to have an understanding of what would actually happen if there was a real major war that even if it didn't have nuclear weapons, it would still be an utter disaster. Right. Uh, and that's, you know, it's, it's contingent on us to prevent that and to, to play a constructive role. So I'm glad you've been consistent, both of you, in your work on this subject, that you do want to see Canada actually play a role towards peace rather than giving talk about how great Canada is and we're doing all this stuff. But, you know, our diplomats are just tailing the U.S. and fulfilling mm. a sort of auxiliary function to the way the U.S. operates. And it's good that you, you were in the Toronto Star and people could see that different perspective. So the, the article is called... How Canada Can Lead North Korean Peace Talks at Vancouver Summit. That's from a week ago today. And you have both been contributing to websites. I know, uh, Christopher, they can find your work on the, uh, the Near Eastern Outlook, I believe. A New Eastern Outlook, yeah. It's
1: journal-neo.org, right? Yeah, Uh You can find a lot of my writing there also on Global Research, but um, mainly there. Yeah, because you do write about uh,
0: North Korea, and you write about international politics and so on, so people can always Mm -hmm. pick up those articles. And, you know, Graham, uh, you have been involved helping out with Global Research and helping publicize tours and all sorts of things that are exciting. Um, So people can, I know, I think you said this article has been posted on Global Research? Yes. Okay, so people can actually find the the article Mm -hmm. on the Global Research site, and they'll be able to find updates if there's going to be some kind of organizing or coalition building or something there, right?
2: Yeah. Yes, I believe that's true. Michel Chossudovsky is giving a talk, I think, in Winnipeg on the fifteenth, Vancouver on the sixteenth, and I suspect he will keep posting things that will be helpful to Canadians who really want to see a movement built against war. In and East you, Asia. you
0: are finding people in, in each city you go to that are interested. Yes,
1: mm-hmm. so that, that's you know a good sign. Well, I think most Canadians. I mean, most Canadians see themselves as, as for peace. I think if you ask any individual Canadian, they'll say that. <clears throat> and if they knew the facts about each situation in each region of the world, what the real facts were, instead of what's being put across to them by, fed to them by certain mass media journals, they would not support what certain governments are doing um, to promote war. I don't think Canadians would do that. I suppose that's why the lie is put out <laughs> to justify these actions. So people are fooled. But we've got to stop being fooled and find out what real facts are.
0: Yes. When it comes to North Korea, they get away with the most outrageous commentary even compared to anyone else. There's jokes on the internet where they show a scale of how much the media will lie about an issue and it goes from, you know, something like uh, Iran or Cuba all the way up to North Korea in which the most outrageous fabrications are routinely tolerated and I think there's a growing recognition that they've been sold a cartoon picture of the country, which is not helpful to ending conflict or having any sort of constructive solution. But you two have been doing very good, consistent work on this subject, and you have contributed a lot. And, and so we're very pleased you could be with us today. Uh, you're setting an example for how the rest of us could approach this issue across Canada, as well as here where you're, you're working in Toronto and Hamilton and so on. So uh, thanks very much for, for coming in, making the time to do this. I think there is a groundswell of people that are conscientious and honest people who, who are willing to do something in their community. So thanks again for being on the program with us well, today. Thanks
2: for having us. It's an honor. Thank you.